Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13 if you'd like to follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of Nicol of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave with me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Heath. Uh, my name is Brian Sorgenfry. It's a privilege to be one of your pastors here. Uh, it won't take you long if you flip to Netflix or anything else to see that our world right now is obsessed with uh, true crime podcasts or uh, serial killers or anything like that. And it always starts right with an act of violence or with a person. And then it starts investigating the question, how did we get here? How in the world did this act happen? Well, we've, we've spent the last six weeks looking at creation, the good and flawless world that God made. And it doesn't take long living in this world before you realize that's not the world I live in. You can, you can bring up the headlines today, and I, I did it this morning, and it showed uh, Vladimir Putin has backed into a corner. Then it talked about a riot at a soccer game where 120 people died. And then it talked about uh, the devastation of, of a hurricane. And as that comes into our face, it has to make us ask, what in the world happened? What has gone wrong? And as we investigate that question, when we take it to the scripture, why so much evil? Why so much death? The invest of that question, questions always lead us back to Genesis 3. That this is where we see evil birth and the cosmic and compounding effects that that has. So we're just going to look at four things. The source of evil. And then we're going to look at uh, one of the main weapons of evil, the result of evil, and hope amidst it, okay? Source, weapon, result, and hope. First, the source, right? In this world that is teeming with life, beauty, order without flaw, that God has said this is good and good and good again. Now in chapter 3, we're told the serpent shows up. We're told that he's crafty, a word that can have the connotation of something being deceptive, cunning, which is a foreshadowing. And it makes us say, okay, what is the serpent? And to make sense of it, one thing we got to remember 
Les referred to this a few weeks ago, that the Garden of Eden is where things are perfect. It's where heaven, which is God's space, where he is and spiritual beings and angels, it is integrated perfectly with earth, with trees and, and rivers and us. God's space, earth together. Sin, after this, separates so that heaven is now unseen to us, but here in the garden, it's all together, which means Adam and Eve, they were enjoying God's love. They were walking, playing, working in the garden. Not only were there trees and animals, but presumably there were spiritual angelic beings around. You'll actually see a cherubim at the end of chapter three. And that is why I would suggest this encounter is not as odd as we first think. They were around. And this angel, this, this spiritual being approaches Eve, the first woman, and begins a conversation. And look, there's a lot of debate. You know, is this uh, a spiritual being taking the form of a serpent? Is he possessing a serpent? Or is this just the Bible using the language of what we now know this is? But whatever it is, the serpent is a manifestation of a being that other places call Satan or the devil. And Satan, if you start piecing together the rest of Scripture, he is an angelic being that God created. God created him good without flaw, like all the rest of his creation. But at some point, that spiritual being rebels and has now been twisted and is the chief enemy of God in everything good. Satan, that word Satan means adversary. He's the chief enemy. He opposes God. He opposes God's purposes. He opposes life. And he is evil, the embodiment of it. And he's in this garden talking to and tempting Eve and Adam. And like, I just begin there because Scripture is wanting you to see that this does not show up until chapter 3. God finishes the work of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Everything that he made is good and teeming with life and flawless. And now here comes the serpent. Scripture wants you to know that evil was not intrinsic with God's creation. It can't be. God is life. God is beauty. There is no darkness in God. So the source of evil cannot be him. It can't be. It comes in after the fact. And I just start with there. That always has to be stated clear that whenever you see wickedness, whenever you see darkness, whenever you see evil, it cannot find its source in God impossible. And we've got to remember that because when we embrace the world that we live in and we embrace God's sovereignty like we should, sometimes we can begin to muddy that truth. But God is pure and good. Evil will never find its source in him. It comes from Satan. It it can come from us or other places. So that's the source. It's always outside of God. But secondly, look at its weapon. How does Satan, this evil, how does, this twisted supernatural being, how does it begin to invite Adam and Eve into the evil? Look, it shouldn't surprise us, right? If the serpent is opposed to God and wants to bring chaos and destruction and the serpent cannot destroy God, what does he go after? He goes after God's favorite thing. He goes after that which is precious to God. We saw this a few weeks ago. God made something really precious in his image, humanity. And so he goes after humanity. And look how Satan works. If God is truth and evil is opposed to everything that God is about, then evil is opposed to truth. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the weapon that the evil is going to use is deceit, twisting. Jesus in the gospel of John is going to call Satan the father of lies. And that's what we begin to see, right? He twists God's word ever so slightly. God in Genesis 2 had said, 
he emphasized his goodness. He said, he told Adam, I give you every tree in the garden. It's all yours. You just can't eat of this one tree. Did you see what Satan said? The serpent says, did God, did God tell you you can't have any tree in the garden? That's actually very different, right? He's twisting the character of God ever so slightly, making it look like God is withholding, like, like he's not trustworthy, like he's not generous. And then Eve responds to Satan's uh, lie and says, no, actually, we're not to eat of this one tree lest we die. And the serpent in verse four says, you'll not, you'll not die. You, you will not surely die. He says, actually, if you eat of it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Here comes the twisting. The serpent directly contradicts God's word and attempts to get Adam and Eve to doubt the love and goodness of God by saying, look, when God told you you can't have this, he actually was saying he doesn't want you to have real life. If you will take this fruit, you will finally experience power and life and freedom. He's attempting to make them doubt the goodness and the love of God. And you can see that that starts making its way into their hearts because verse 6, that which was forbidden now becomes desirable and a delight to their eyes. When they start thinking, I can be independent of God and be wise and have the good life, the lies moving inside of them. I just want you to see that Satan does not begin coming to Adam and Eve and saying God doesn't exist. That would never work. Instead, what he does is he suddenly begins to suggest that God isn't trustworthy. That he doesn't really love you. That he's not for you. And that's what opens the door. Look, you don't have to have read uh, Harry Potter books to understand what I'm about to tell you, okay? Harry is a wizard. And there is a great, good wizard that his whole life, what he has devoted his life to is to protect Harry. And if you read through the books, his, uh, Dumbledore, you get most nervous for Harry anytime that Harry starts doubting whether Dumbledore is really for him and is really good. Because anytime Harry starts questioning Dumbledore's uh, goodness and love of him, it opens the door to all kinds of craziness and foolishness. That's what's happening here is they start believing the lie of evil that maybe God isn't good, maybe he doesn't love me. As that lie makes its way into their hearts, the soil is there for the first sin, uh, sinful act of eating the forbidden fruit to come about. And that, I would suggest, is the same lie that is in all of our hearts that always produces the havoc that we wreak with our own evil. A couple examples, right? If you're married, when the thought enters, I would be happier with somebody else, okay? You probably don't vocalize it. Instead, what you do is you start thinking about, well, if my, if my spouse died, who would I marry, right? That's, that's kind of how it begins to look. What's behind that is this little seed of doubt towards the goodness and character of God. That I've begun to think that God is holding out on me. He doesn't have my best interest in mind. Not with the spouse he's given. He might've been good to other people, but not me. And as soon as that thought starts, that's the soil that produces all kinds of bitterness and jealousy and whatever else that begins to decay a relationship. Our kids think about gossip. Again, this isn't just a kid problem, uh, but what is so enticing about being the one who knows the information about someone that's damaging, right? It makes me feel important that people come to me. When I share it and I relish in that, it puts others down and builds me up. See, that 
I can only begin that path if, I, if I've quit believing that God loves me and is going to take care of me, that what he says about me makes me important. And so I start taking it into my own hands. And that's the thought where so much self-righteousness and gossip and slander arises that just wreaks havoc on people. The lie behind the evil is God doesn't really love you. You can't trust him. And it makes his commands seem like a fence around an amusement park, but it's not. It's a fence around death traps. That's who he is. He loves you. And so the source of evil, it can never be God. There's no darkness in him. The weapon of evil is that he lies and begins to deceive us, to, to make us doubt the goodness and love of God. But third, look at the result, right? We've already mentioned verse four, but, but um, to Eve, when Satan says, you will not die, it is a direct contradiction of what God said in Genesis 2. God looks at Adam and says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And there is no darkness in God. He cannot lie. He was telling the truth that if you eat from this fruit, death will come. Why will death come? Why is the result of evil always death? Because we need to talk about this because I think sometimes we can read this, this and we think, gosh, they just kind of broke a rule and, and now the penalty is death. And we start twisting the character of God and making it sound like he's this tyrant, this withholding God. But that's not who he is. Think about this. This is from um, my friend Ricky, actually. Everybody knows Everybody has ever seen a Pixar movie, right? Every Pixar movie starts with the lamp, right? It jumps out, okay? Imagine that that Pixar, imagine that that lamp is actually plugged into a wall, okay? And every time it starts jumping away from, from the wall, if it gets to the end, imagine it makes one final jump and it pulls the plug out of the wall. What happens? The light's gonna die. No more Pixar movies. It's over, Right? Why? Because the lamp disengaged itself from the source of power, from the source of life. It turned away from that. Look, when Adam and Eve, when Adam specifically, he's our representative, when he takes the fruit, he has chosen independence from life itself. He has turned away from goodness. He has turned away from beauty. And, when, and the serpent's temptation to Adam is, why are you plugged into God? Why are you dependent on him? If you want real life, if you want real freedom, unplug yourself. And when they do, when they declare, we want independence from God, we want to decide for ourselves what's right and, right and wrong, it's a movement away from God and it unplugs themselves from the source of life. And so death has to come and everything breaks. This is why evil is always opposed to, to life. And so though it promises life, on the other side of evil will always be decay and death. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans when he says the wages of sin is death. Choosing independence from God here has cosmic implications. It ruins everything. So when you look at verses 7 through 9, right before this moment, we saw this last week, Adam and Eve they are naked and unashamed. They live before God and each other fully exposed, enjoying God's world, enjoying his smile, completely dependent on him. They knew God loved them. Of course they did. They were his image, the pinnacle of creation. But now you can feel the devastation. Their eyes are opened, not to a better life, not to real freedom, but to a, the corruption has gone within them. Evil is in them. There's shame. There's guilt. And when God shows up in verse 8, they hide. In verse 9, Adam tells God they're afraid. 
Why are they afraid? Because of what I just said. Guilt. Guilt always disintegrates. Guilt always separates. It's a little death. Evil always brings guilt before God and always separates. We know this is true. I told this, I think I've told this before. There was a horrifying moment in my life where I was texting something nasty about someone else and I actually sent it to him instead of the friend I was meaning to send it to. When I sent it to him, it was utter panic. I threw the phone against the wall. I ran out of the room. Liza saw me. I think she thought I'd seen a death. I was so white because everything in me had to get away from this person, even though it wasn't even the room because guilt separates. And so guilt, this guilt, this sin separates them from, from right relationship with God. It brings death into their relationship with God. But because, because evil is not just outside of them, it's in them. It corrodes everything. But then because they're the pinnacle of creation, because they're image of God, because they're supposed to rule and reign with, with God, when, when they sin, when they disengage themselves, it also breaks everything else. And so now their relationship with each other is no longer characterized by care and love and safety. Now they start blame shifting. They start tearing each other apart because this is what evil does. You don't need Genesis 3 to tell you that violence and manipulation and jealousy and abuse, it, it corrodes, it kills relationships, right? And then creation itself breaks. I mean, just think about the, the devastation of this last week. Ocean, water, which God made good, which is supposed to be a source of delight and a theater of play. What we saw that last week is that ocean, the ocean can also become a place of devastation and wreak havoc on a Florida coast because it's filled with decay and death. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so Genesis 3 is screaming that evil and its eventual result, death, it is not originally part of God's good world. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Actually, death is the number one sign that the presence of evil is still here and things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so I would just implore you, that means you do not and never should make friends with evil and you, should, you don't ever have to be okay with death. It's an, an alien invader to this world. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And so chapter three is, this, is just devastating. We see the source of evil is never God. We see that Satan uses uh, the, the weapon of, of deceit and lying and that evil makes its way inside of Adam and Eve and because we're born of Adam, we all are born with that same guilt and, and the same seeds of evil. And so now the result is a world filled with death. And chapter three is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. But there is hope. There's like real hope. Because yes, they choose independence from God and it's painful. They're captured by the lie that God cannot be trusted. He isn't good. And there's a sense of death over their heads. But did you see verse eight? They hear God walking towards them. They hear God calling out to them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? He comes for them. It's amazing. Really, if you think about it, it's amazing. He comes for the people who just pulled the plug. He comes for the people who just... who who just distrusted him, who rebelled against them. And he starts calling them out with questions, inviting them to trust him again, inviting them to trust his goodness. When I lived in uh, Starkville, uh, my wife, who loves people better than I do, invited me to uh, this foster care meeting to, to listen about it. And one of the ladies there uh, was telling a story about her foster care experience and about how 
once or twice, she had had in her house uh, what they called runaways. And it would be someone whose life had growing up been so chaotic that actually the safety of a home felt chaotic and what felt normal was outside running away, which kind of makes sense. And so she said, these were called runaways. And what would happen is sometimes at 2 a.m. you'd wake up and you'd go and you'd find that their foster daughter was gone. And so she said, what she would do, they'd develop a system. She'd get on the phone and she'd call her neighbors. And the neighbors at 2 a.m. would just canvas the neighborhood until they found her. And they'd bring her back and they'd sure that they loved her and, and you're ours and it's okay. And then it would happen again and again. And I just, I remember listening to that, my jaw dropping. And I thought, what a picture of what God is like. We run away from him. We disconnect from him. We distrust him. And he comes after us. He comes after sinners. We convince ourselves that he's not for us. And so we take things into our own hands. And, and then the, lie, the, the, the whispering of evil really happens when we sin. He says, God doesn't want you. God, never want, God does not want you since you've committed evil. You can't, you can't trust him with your sin. Yet here's God calling them, inviting them to, tr- to repent and to trust. But see, it's going to get even better than this. Because what Satan always does is he underestimates the love of God. Evil does not have a category for grace. It does not understand love. And when God sets foot in the garden, he is saying, this isn't over. I will not let evil win. I will not let evil have the last laugh. It's a step of grace. And he moves towards them. He says, my love for creation, my love for my people is much greater than you ever imagined. And he's going to keep drawing near until he does something that will ultimately break the, the powerful deception of Satan and ultimately overturn death itself. What he's going to do is the one who has no darkness, the one who is not the source of evil at all and never can be, will take on a human body in the person of Jesus and he will walk this broken earth. And the reason that I said Genesis 3 is one of the cha- saddest chapters in the Bible it's because like Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you've ever read it, the saddest uh, chapter in the Bible is how, is how the life of Jesus ends. Because the one who is perfect, the one who the Bible calls the second Adam, he is tempted by Satan and he never gives in. He succeeds every place that Adam fails. And yet he is assaulted. He takes on corruption. He's falsely accused because of greed for 30 pieces of silver, he's betrayed by one of his friends. Violence is done to him as he's hung on a cross. And then what's amazing is the wages of sin itself, death, comes onto Jesus and he dies. How can that be? How can the pure one, how can the one who is life itself, who has committed no evil, how can he have the wages of sin on him? How can he die? The plug gets pulled on Jesus but he didn't deserve it. Well, he's actually defeating evil. He's defeating Satan for our sakes, but he's doing something else. And this is how I'm in. I want to fix on this. Um, this. Uh, When Billy Graham passed away, the great evangelist years ago, his daughter uh, actually spoke at the funeral. And here's the story she told. She um, actually, uh, her first marriage ended after 21 years. And then, so she moved in with her, um, with her, I think it was her brother or sister, and very quickly in the church she was part of, she met another man that this pastor had introduced her to. And despite all the warnings from her dad and her family not to move so fast, she married him within five weeks on New Year's Eve. And 
she said um, a few weeks into, uh, actually said 24 hours on the honeymoon, she realized this man is not who I thought it was. This is a horrible mistake. He's, a, he's an evil man. And so she left the next morning and she didn't know where to go. And so she just starts driving towards her dad's house, Billy Graham. And she starts playing through in her head, what, what am I going to say? <laughs> my parents told me not to do this. My parents told me this was foolish. And she said this, she said, you know, you never want to embarrass your parents, but the one thing you don't want to do is embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> and she said, as she pulled up to the house, she gets out of the car and there's her dad on the porch and he wraps his arms around her and he says, welcome home. No shame, no blame, no condemnation. And she said these words, my father is not God, but he showed me what God was like these, that day. Welcome home. You see, Ruth Graham had been deceived. She had been deceived and doubted her father's love. But when she turned, there he was offering grace. Welcome home. The death of Christ is the untwisting of evil. It's the untwisting of the lie that you cannot trust God, that he's not for you. Because when you look at the cross, you realize he is bearing my evil. He's bearing the, the, the consequences of my evil so that I can be reconciled to him so that I can be clean, so that I can be restored. And it untwists the line, the power of evil that says God doesn't really love you. You have to take care of yourself. You have to tear others down by gossip. The lie that says God doesn't really love you. If God loved you, you'd have more money or you'd have a better spouse or you'd have less suffering. You look at the cross, you realize, no, that's not true. God loves me so much that he gave up himself and the father loves me so much that he gave up his only son. He will not withhold anything else that I, that I need. That's the untwisting that happens at the cross. And you receive it by faith. He is not a withholding God. You can trust him. You can trust him with your sin. You can trust him with the evil and guilt within. You can trust him with the evil that's been done to you that's so painful that one day he's going to vanquish it and he's going to walk with you through it. This is the summary. The evil is real. It really is opposed to God and it has made its way into our hearts. But God overcomes evil by taking it on himself in the death of Jesus. And he says, you can trust him. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, uh, evil is real. Many of us in this room have experienced the power of evil and the devastation it brings. Some because evil that has happened to us and some, all of us in some ways, because the evil that has come from us. And so for the evil that we've committed, would you give us the gift of repentance to turn, to turn from independence back into the welcoming and gracious arms of Jesus? And for the experience of evil inflicted upon us, would you give us eyes to see Jesus, the one who took it upon himself and hates it and promises one day to vanquish it forever and bring healing? In Jesus' name, amen.